Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. and um, We'll be looking at the passage there. How many watched the Super Bowl? Anybody here watch the Super Bowl? Just hold your hand up. All right. Happy with the outcome? Not, man, not very many of you. All right. Few people are uh, really happy with the outcome. I like uh, I like the fact that they put a game between commercials. <laughs> that's that's fun. That makes it fun. Uh, no, I was uh, I was thinking about this commercial that came on during the Super Bowl, where there were two actors trying to convince us how delicious this certain soft drink was. You probably, if you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, uh, what was interesting, it's, it's really not important which one or which actors. The thing that made it so clever and, and caused it to find its way into this message was the fact that the actors admitted that they were being actors while they were promoting this soft drink. So the interesting thing to me about that, it left you wondering whether they really liked the drink or whether they're just acting like it. And uh, I thought I thought it brings to the forefront one of the troubling things about advertising is that we can't know for sure whether an endorsement is true or not. You know, we don't know. Uh, we should also keep in mind that when actors are endorsing their causes and standing behind their politics or even accepting awards with tearful speeches that they're actors and they know how to put on a face and pretend to be sincere. Um, of all people, they should be, probably be most suspect, and I'm not here to criticize actors today uh, in the Hollywood profession. There's plenty of criticism for that, and we could talk about that, but the real test of whether they really believe their product or not, uh, or their cause, is whether they use it or they do it when no one's watching, right? It's whether they do it or use it when no one's watching. It used to be a time when people they were expected to tell the truth about a product. And I think they still do a little bit in med- medicine commercials, like prescription drugs. You know what I'm talking about? Like here's, they show the happy couple walking. The sunset is gleaming through. <laughs> it's shining through. You get the, the solar glare on the camera lens. And then it says, if you use this, you'll probably get diarrhea and your your stomach will explode and you're going to have headaches for days and all of that. Uh, that's the one area, probably because they've been sued to oblivion, where they make sure they cover themselves. Uh, but when we're talking about soft drinks, it's just like, I prefer this one or that one. Daniel Borston wrote a book in the 60s called The Image, and he talked about the shift that had taken place in the common experience uh, of, of American life with uh, the shift being from the emphasis on truth to the emphasis on credibility. It's not so much what's really true or what's substantial, but the real question is, is it believable? Is it believable? And that's a monumental shift whether you believe it or not. What, what seems important then in that kind of setting is not truth, but what's known as verisimilitude. That's the appearance of being true or real. And so it doesn't matter whether something's true. Does it appear to be true? Does it seem to be true or real? This is the art, he, he talks about, this is the art of discovery, not the art of discovery of truth, but the invention or the making of things to seem true 
which is rewarded in a culture like this. And he traces the beginnings of this back to the outrageous claims of P.T. Barnum uh, for the shift in the way we do advertising. But I wonder today as we look at our scripture about the shift in how we advertise ourselves. Because how we advertise ourselves, that trend goes back much further. So when you think about it in the book of Matthew here, Jesus talks about it, and certainly it goes back way before this, is that there's a public self and there's a private self, isn't there? And what the goal of integrity is, is that our public self and our private self match, that there not be some disparity. I'm not saying that there are certain ways that you act within your home that you need to, you need to keep there, right? But I'm talking about the kind of person you are in your home, and out in public, that'll be the same. They ought to match the kind of person, not necessarily the things you do. Obviously, you know, um, there's different things within the home. But, but I, I want us to understand the importance of being the kind of people that God wants us to be and being a people of integrity. And so the title of the message today is The Show. The Show. Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 1 with me, and we'll jump through some scriptures here to catch the, the theme of this message. Verse 1 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. Now, it's important that we capture that whole sentence because Jesus does not say, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, period. What he says is not to practice our righteousness in front of others, what? In order to be seen by them. In order to be seen by them, to show, put on some kind of show. He says, if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by them. Truly, I tell you, they have, their, they have received their reward in full. Instead, he says, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 5, jump down to verse 5 with me. It says there, and when you pray, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you fast, verse 16, sorry, verse 16, and when you fast, don't look somber. As the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and they show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they receive their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your, your head and wash your face. Don't, don't look all greasy uh, so that it will, uh, it will not be uh, obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. See, the, the problem here is not that anybody should do things that are seen by others, but that we should do things from the primary motive of being seen by others. You understand that there is a certain call to witness, which I'll talk about in just a moment, that we have to do things that are seen by others as part of our witness. But that can't be our primary motivation. If it is, we become actors in some kind of a play or some kind of a drama, and that's what I think Jesus is calling us to avoid. I'd like you to notice that in each of these, there's an action, okay, and then there's a reason given. So whether the action is giving or praying or fasting, 
And then there's a reason that's given. One is the proper reason, uh, and one is the alternative reason. And he, he mentions that, makes a primary of that, that the reason is to be seen. And then there's a judgment based upon that. And something which uh, verse 5 shows us is that it's not only hypocrisy to do the wrong things while acting like you're doing the right thing, but it's also hypocrisy to do the right thing with the wrong motives. Do you, you understand what I mean by there? There's a disconnect somehow between the internal and the external. When we, when we even do the right things for the wrong reasons, that's hypocrisy. In our culture, we tend to focus on the other side of things. It's when you, when you claim to be one thing and then you do the wrong thing. That's hypocrisy, and it is. But it also goes the other way. It's when we do the right things, but we do them with the wrong kinds of motives. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrite, um, you may know this already, is the Greek word for actor. Did you know that? Actor. It's to play a part. It's to play a part. And so if you substitute the English word for actor or uh, something like that, you might get yourself closer a little bit to what Jesus was trying to say. Now, I've noticed a tendency here when it comes to these things, because I think we somehow deep down know that we don't, we don't want to, as Christians, be insincere. We want to do the right thing, and we want to do it from the right motives. Um, and so sometimes we want to kind of back off and go underground with our lives because we don't want to be seen as insincere or somebody call us out for being a hypocrite. And I've, I've had people say... Um, we did a prayer meeting one time many years ago. This person's not here anymore. But uh, he met me angry that we were doing a prayer meeting because the Bible says you're not supposed to pray uh, in public together. You need to go into a private place and pray. And how do you reconcile this with the fact that we're doing a prayer meeting in front of one another? And so I had to explain to this guy that the point that Jesus is trying to make is that every time we pray, we have to go into a closet or hide somewhere the point that he's trying to make is that we have the right motives when we do pray. And if you can't do the right motives when you're praying in public, then you need to find a place where you can pray privately so that you're praying for the right kinds of reasons. So we don't want to be that kind of thing. Some people want to step back and, and go underground with their faith. Verse 5 says, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I know of a denomination they refuse to receive offerings because of this scripture. Because somebody might be seen going and giving in the offering box. Which, by the way, I, my heart melts when I see our little kids coming and giving. I don't know about you, but I think that's really precious. They're giving to the Lord. But there's this idea that we can't, we can't give in a visible way. And it, it's what's given birth to the, the concept of the Pentecostal handshake is because there are certain Pentecostal denominations that don't believe you should give in a way that can be seen. You should always give in a secretive and a quiet way. And that's not really, in my understanding, that's not really what Jesus is saying. Once again, he's not prohibiting by giving an absolute rule here. He's, he's challenging people to ask, why are we doing these things? After all, he commended the woman who gave publicly in the temple, didn't he? He commended her. She gave much more than all the others. She gave her her two pence, and she gave much more than the others. So Jesus saw that. A lot of people saw that. He wasn't condemning that action. He's saying we need to ask the question about motivation. What's the motivation behind all of these things? And so um, 
going underground is not the answer. Because the verse we, we read has to be balanced out with a previous verse in Matthew 5 that says in verse 14, You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. What's the light here? He goes on to tell us that they may see your good deeds. The light is your life with good deeds. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So it seems to me that Jesus, if we look at it on the surface level, he's saying in one place, do things where things can be seen. In another place, he's saying don't do things where they can be seen. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying in the first place, do things where they can be seen by others. But don't do them for the purpose primarily of being seen by others so that you can get acclaim from it. You see the difference? That there is a life that's lived outward that needs to be witnessed by others, but we don't primarily do it for that reason. We need to do it for the Lord's sake. So there's that tendency. And so I want to challenge us as we think about our motives today, about, about being authentic, that we that we not go underground because of this verse and say, I'm just not going to do anything that anybody else can see. And then if I, if I fail in this area, it can't be criticized. Or if I fail in this area, at least I won't be guilty of being a hypocrite or, or whatever. No, that's not the challenge. The challenge for us today is do the right things with the right motives. Second uh, response that we often get to this is that there's a tendency to not do anything that we don't feel. As if, I, I know... I'm approaching my soapbox here, and if you know me, you know that this is a little bit of a soapbox issue, but it comes up again and again, and it comes up in my life. And so I know it comes up in yours because I hear it sometimes in our conversations, that oftentimes we don't do things because we're not feeling them. And I want to challenge that uh, thinking. We, we say we don't want to do it because we're not feeling it, and that would be in, insincere. I've had people tell me, and I'm not referring to anybody who's here today, so just so you know that, I'm not going to say any names. But I've had people tell me that they can't worship because they're not feeling it. And if they did go through it, they would just be going through the motions and it would be insincere. How, how would you respond to that? <laughs> okay, that's, a, that's good. Yep, C.S. Lewis said something like that regarding love. He says, don't worry about whether you feel love or not. Act as if you do, and the feelings will soon follow. I, I think that's a, good, that's a good response to it. Um, it seems to me um, that, that misses, this, this whole thing misses Mark, not that statement, because I think that's true. But this whole thing of, I'm not going to do it because I don't feel it, and that would be insincere, misses the mark, because we are more than our feelings, Okay? That we have, if you know yourself, you know you have competing things going on in your life. If you've ever had an argument with yourself about what to do, yes, I'm going to do this. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. You know that you're not just one kind of monolithic thing. You're a bunch of different things competing, emotions and will and thoughts and advice from other people and advice that you know and what the Scripture says. There's a lot of different things competing in your life for what, we're, what you're going to do. Anybody with me on that? And those things don't always happily agree, do they? How I feel often doesn't agree with what I know is right. I mean, you might not have felt like getting up and coming to church this morning, but somehow your will overlorded 
your feelings. Thank God for that, because that's on the right track, because we don't always feel it. And so sometimes we have to say to our feelings, get on board. We often find that our feelings are not on board with doing the right thing because it's scary, it's costly. And so when we're talking about motives, we're talking about our doing the right thing because it's the right thing, not because anyone is watching, not because we feel like it. You see, it's a lie which comes from humanist philosophy that says that we have to feel good about something for it to be right. And you could trace this back to Rousseau and probably any of the existential philosophers, and they're going to tell you that you are your truest self when you're doing what you feel. And that's found its way into the church, and it's devastating. We have to say, we have to recognize that our flesh does not want to obey God in and of itself, and it has to be crucified. It has to be brought into alignment with what God is doing. Our will has to come into alignment with His will. We have to get those wily emotions, they're like wild children that are spoiled, we have to get them under control and say, this is how we live for God. Come on, you know what I mean? And then once they've been trained and disciplined, those feelings come into a play. And you can see God dealing with emotions. I, I'm on my soapbox, so I'm going to have to get back off this and get back on the entrance ramp to our main message here. But you can see this in Scripture again and again. Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you, why are you, why are you here? He's in a funk. God's just done something great. He's in a funk because not everybody repented and got saved after that grand miracle. Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry? You see, God has the right always to question our emotions. And oftentimes in our world, we think emotions have their rights. We have a right to feel this way. You don't. You don't have a right to feel that way. What we have a right to do is to submit ourselves to God and bring our emotions in alignment with that. All right, I'm getting back on the ramp here. We're getting going forward with the rest of this message. You see, we can't just act on instinct or be true to our feelings. The connection between these passages that we've discussed, the, the Matthew 6 passage, the Matthew 5 passage, the connection between them is motivation, and feelings are not necessarily the right motivation. The right motivation is that we've received revelation from God, and we know the truth, and we want to do what pleases Him. That's the right motivation, okay? And so it's not how we feel. <laughs> I have to be careful. I'm veering towards the exit ramp again, but it's what we know we need to do, and we put that into practice, and the challenge then is to do the right thing, um, and then to think about why we do it. We can't go into hiding because of fear that we have the wrong motives. And it's also not enough just to do the right thing. By all means, do the right thing, but it matters to God why we do the right thing. And so the only solution I see is to bring our actions and our motives to God to be purified and then to do what pleases Him. Proverbs 16.2, I just want to mention a couple scriptures that relate to this. Proverbs 16.2 a, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Uh, Matthew 23, 5-7, Philippians 1, 18, James 4, 4, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3-7, Revelation 2, 23, talks about uh, Jesus being the one who uh, sees the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There's a lot of verses. If you didn't catch that, go back and watch the video or uh, come talk to me afterwards. 
So here we're talking about motives, and a motive is a reason for doing something. That's what it is, a reason. Why do we do what we do? And uh, sometimes this is a difficult thing to work through, and I wrestled with whether I would tell you this or not, but I have a painful example from my own life about 30 years ago. There was a, uh, I was at Bible college, and um, we had a class chapel, which meant that the larger student body wasn't meeting, but we were meeting with our class, which I think that day was probably 200 plus. And there were murmurings of revival that was going on in different places in the nation. And we wanted to see revival. I wanted to see revival hit in our school and in my life and everywhere. Um, and so one of the things that I know that was happening at revivals and has happened at revivals is that people confess their sins. Did you know that? And one of the signs of revival is in where there's true repentance and confession of sins and people are ready to change. And that's an awesome thing. And, and I don't know all what's going on at Asbury, but if God is legitimately moving and changing lives, they're ready to rejoice in that. We don't have to go there and get it. Let's rejoice that God is doing something there and let's pray, God, do something in my heart that you want to do. Okay? So um, I was interested in that, and so it got into my mind somehow, if you'll go up there and confess a sin, then a chain of events will happen that will lead others to confess their sins, and we're going to experience revival. Okay? I, I cringe telling you this. Okay? So I did. I, I went up there and said to whoever was moderating the, the class chapel, uh, do you mind if I say something? And so they graciously let me in. Um, I confessed some kind of sin of the heart. And it was silent for a moment. And then slowly people started to talk to one another again. And then the moment passed. Revival come? No. <laughs> Revival didn't come. Uh, it was painful. I ended up walking out. I left. And I learned a valuable lesson that day about motivation. Because what I found out later was I wanted to be the man that started the revival. Okay? Yes. Do I want revival? That's a good motivation to want revival. Is it the right motivation that I want to be the man that brings it? Because I want to be in the spotlight? Because I want to be the important person? No. And in addition, is that the way to try to create revival? I don't know that man can manipulate and create revival. We can only pray that God will send it. Are you with me? That we don't create revival in and of ourselves. God needs to send it. We need to call upon him to do that and to do a work in us first. It revi revival starts here with us. And so that, to me, was a very painful lesson about how I had a good motivation, but there was also another competing motivation that moved past that. And it's still, it's been almost 30 years, and it's still painful <laughs> for me to think about. I have to confess that to you. So, Motivations are difficult things to evaluate. Why are we doing what we're doing? I think the first reason it's difficult is because um, we may not always think about the reasons why we do what we do. Sometimes we just get into this rut, like we're on the tracks of the American dream, and we just go wherever it leads. Why do we do what we do? I don't know. It's just we do it. And we, we're not always sure exactly why it is that we do these things. You see, hypocrite is not only an actor, but it's also, Jesus used it in chapter 7, verse 5, of somebody who is a critic of others, 
but not a critic of themselves. Why do, you, why do you pick the speck out of somebody else's eye, but you don't take the beam out of your own? They're criticizing others, but not themselves. And so one of the definitions of hypocrite is to be a critic of others, but not of ourselves. And when we live an unexamined life, I'm borrowing from Greek philosophy here, uh, it's not good. We need to examine why it is that we do what we do. We need to understand that because only then can we really start to understand what our motivations are and think deeply about why we live the way that we do. Motives are also difficult because we usually operate out of a mixture of these motives. And they need constantly to be purified. And we, we constantly have to continue to put the most important motive back on top because often these things shift and jockey for position. Is that just me, or is, do you think that's true of all of us? I think there are other motives that if we, we don't keep an eye on it, they will creep in and take priority. We have to purify our motives, and we have to, uh, we don't have to wait till our motives are completely genuine to do the right thing, but we, we have to bring our actions and our motives together. And I think one of the problems with this is that, and I, I almost brought this chart for us today, but do you know that you can do the, you can do the right things with the wrong motives. You can also do the wrong things with the right motives. So let's just take work, for example, and we'll put work on one side of the chart, and on the top side of the chart we'll put motivations, right and wrong, work and stealing. Okay? Do you know there are some people who steal with right motivations? Can you think of anything like that? Like they can't somehow get the money. They steal to feed their families. That's a good motivation, feeding your family. It's the wrong action, okay? Some people do the right thing with the wrong motivations. They're working not to provide for their family, but because of greed and avarice. They want to get rich, and they want to be better than the people next door. That's the right thing with the wrong motivation. You can do the wrong thing with the wrong motivation, too, like stealing not because you want to provide for your family, but because you want to become rich and better than everybody else. We know that one's out of the picture, right? Hopefully. And then there's the right thing with the right motivation, working so that you can provide for your family. You you understand what I'm saying here is that this can become a little bit complicated. And so what we have to do is somehow couple right beliefs with right action and uh, right motivations with right action. The third thing is that motivations are difficult things to evaluate because we can so easily be self-deceived about our motivations. If you had asked me 30 years ago, why are you going to do that? I would say, I would have said to you, I want to see revival come. That's the most important thing to me. In retrospect, now I would understand that it was more complicated than that, that what I wanted was to be the man that brought revival. You see how that kind of snuck in there? It was a little more than what I thought. There was more motivation in one direction than what I thought. I was self-deceived about what my motivation was. You see, um, we can be self-deceived, and others can't always see our motivations for what they are. Because we have that hidden interior of our life that only us, to some extent, and God, to the fullest extent, can see. Um, and, And that simply is said like this. God knows you better than you know yourself. So we know ourselves, I think, better than others. At least we know more of ourselves. 
though we can be self-deceived, but God knows us perfectly, and he's not deceived by any of our lies or falsehoods or excuses. He sees right through it all. Are you with me on that? A hypocrite, then, uh, will, uh, not William, but Robert Mount says in his commentary on Matthew, a hypocrite is not always an attempt to deceive. Jesus often addressed those who are hypocritical as being disastrously self-deceived. It's not always that a hypocrite is somebody who is trying to put off a false front for other people. That's how we use it. But one biblical way to understand that is that those who are hypocrites think they're doing the right thing, but they're self-deceived. And that's hypocritical as well. So we have this this mixture of motives that can cause us to be self-deceived. They're part of that hidden interior of the life that's only accessible to us and to God. Though I think that those motives are a little more exposed than we think. Come on, are you with me? Do you know we can pretend for a while, but we can't fool everybody all the time? Those motives play out in time, and I think behavior over time demonstrates what's really in our heart. And so if we think we're fooling people with what our true motives are, in time it will be seen. And uh, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul says, um, I don't care if you judge me. It makes no difference. You don't need to judge me. I, I'm not going to accept that judgment. And I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. And when he comes, he will expose all things for what they really are. He, sh- he will show things. He'll bring to light those things that are hidden in darkness. And I think it may be in First uh, Corinthians 3 when he talks about um, everything being tried by fire and only those things which are gold, silver, and precious stones will last. I think the chaff is probably some of that chaff is our motives, those things that were done from the wrong motives being burned away. So um, we can uh, ask some questions to check our motives And if we were to do that, I would suggest that this could be a good rubric to run our motives test through. So if you have a pen and paper, write this down. If you're a quick typer, type it. If you're uh, able to memorize this, do it. If not, go back and listen to it. But I think these are good questions to ask from time to time with what you're doing for God. Would I do this if nobody else cared? Would I do it if nobody else cared? That's going to be a real question of motives because one of the main motives that we have that competes with God is what do other people think about me and do they like what I'm doing? Okay, that's number one. Number two is, would I do this if I got nothing out of it? Would I do it if I got nothing out of it? Okay. Let me bring it into worship. And I'm, I'm just using this hypothetically because I know when you worship God, you get something out of it. You get something in return. But I would, I would ask you, would you worship God still if there weren't a blessing in it for you? Does he deserve it? Has he given us enough? It's okay. Is everybody asleep? He's given us enough. Do we need to have more? I mean, yes, we can ask more. Yes, we can receive more. But here's the question. Isn't God worthy of our worship regardless of whether we should get something out of it. Let's say we come in on a day when our head is throbbing and we can't think of anything else and there's no joy in singing. For whatever reason, it's, a, it's the most terrible day you can think of. Would you worship God 
if you felt like that. Number three, would you would you do it if it was hard? Some people get off the get on the exit ramp right there. The moment it becomes hard, we go the path of least resistance. Whatever is easy, we take that. But anytime something gets hard, we're done with that. Well, sometimes God calls us to do hard things. That's biblical, by the way, to do hard things. There's glory in doing hard things for God. And then the fourth thing is, would you do it? Would you do what is the right thing to do if people actively opposed you? If people that you cared about actively opposed you, would you still do it? Because that, that really that filters through and it asks us, what is our motivation, especially when it comes to other people, whether it's rewarding to us or other people? You know, the Bible is concerned that our motives be purified. About 15 times in the New Testament, it mentions sincerity. And that doesn't include all the Old Testament references, which show that lives lived before God need to be done with sincerity. We need to love the Lord with all of our heart, okay? We also, uh, he rebukes Israel because they worship him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. There's not, there's not integrity in their worship because their actions and their heart aren't in agreement. It's their motivation wasn't right in doing it. It was almost like they were treating God like the pagans do. Do you know that um, probably Judaism and Christianity as the child of Judaism... It's the first religion in the world where people are called to worship God out of love. In every other religion, it's a responsibility or we're training in our worship and so that there can be some kind of surplus of that praise or that sacrifice so that God doesn't hurt us. That's the thinking. But not not with Yahweh, not with Jesus. He calls us to a heart of love for him. And that ought to be our chief motive. He calls us to do it with sincerity. So what are the right motives? And you'll be glad to know I'm almost done here. Number one, we need to, we need to do what we do for God. And, and I would suggest all we do in life, that we want to do it to please God and out of love for God. Are you with me? There's three of these, so they'll go quick. If you say amen. Amen? <laughs> all right, number two, we do what things we ought to do. We do it because it's the right thing. We do it for the love of the good. Okay, This is not far removed from we do it because it pleases God. Goodness is not arbitrary. It's connected to the nature of God. It's not like just God said, you know what, I'm going to call this the good and that the evil. It's not like that. Good proceeds from his character. And so when we love the good, we're loving the character of God. So we want to do the right things because of the right things. I like one of my favorite uh, works of fiction is To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know if you've read that. I'm going to spoil a little bit of it for you. But uh, you'll know that Atticus Finch is an attorney, and he's embroiled in this legal controversy that's set the whole town against him. And I remember, I don't know exactly how he said it, but uh, he's defending a man that everybody wants to see destroyed. And he knows the man is innocent. He says... To his daughter, his daughter asked, why are, why are you doing this? It's brought a rain of terror down upon their family. And he says, we do the right thing not because, not because it's advantageous to us, but because it's the right thing. And we live in a pragmatic culture, which means the right thing is the thing that, which works. That's not biblical. 
the biblical thing is the right thing is the right thing, whether it is to our advantage or to our disadvantage. Let's do the right thing. Third reason, third motivation, is that we want to serve others. We want to serve others. This is out of love for others. The two commands, love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. And they go together because Jesus said, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. So in a sense, the way we love our neighbor is the way we're loving God. First John, it says, you can't say that you love God and hate your neighbor. How can you love God who you can't see and, lo- and hate your neighbor who you do see? That person, he says, is a liar. And so those are the three motivations, I would suggest, for doing the right thing. And they ought to be king. Okay? First God, love for the good, love for others. One thing to remember in all of this is the spotlight is not for you. If you're a Christian, the spotlight's not for you. It's always for him. If you're leading in worship, if you're on the worship team, if you're preaching or teaching, if you're teaching Sunday school class, if you're excelling at your job, if you're out in the community as a good citizen and you find yourself in the spotlight, remember this, your motivation is never about you. It's always about him. Spotlight's never for you. John the Baptist said it best, and this is the John the Baptist motto, I must decrease so that he may increase. Less of me, more of you. That's great motivation. John the Baptist's sole reason for living was to prepare the way for Jesus. When that reason for living was done, he had a departure. <laughs> right? And there's, there's others as well. So the spotlight is never for you. This Wednesday, I want to talk about uh, the pure in heart. And so if you're normally not in here, check it out on the the live or the um, the video podcast. I can't even think of what that would be called now. What is it? Your live stream, the live stream. You can check that out later on if you're not able to be here, but I would encourage you to come because we're going to talk a little bit more about this. But the thing I wanted to challenge us with today is that we have pure motives and we have right action. And those things don't need to be in competition with each other. They need to work together. And so do the right thing, and let's bring our motivations into alignment with what God's will is for us. Can I challenge you with that? Jesus did it perfectly. He always did the right thing with the right motivation. And with the Holy Spirit living within you, he's beginning to clean out those things that were in our heart. and He's transforming us. He's perfecting us. We've been perfected in standing when we were declared righteous. But do you know that he's gone about the work of sanctifying us through and through? That means throwing out the old self, bringing in the nature of God so that it can be front and center. And when we do things unto the Lord, best motive of all. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention today. We can't live the Christian life apart from a, a supernatural encounter with God where we're born again and the nature of God comes to live inside of us through the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. So the first question about motives is this, is this is have you received Christ? Because we're not talking here today about behavior modification, some kind of philosophy of life that changes our behavior. 
We're not talking about that. We're talking about living out what God has already planted in seed form in us. And so um, if you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, I would encourage you today, say to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and mean it. And then find out what it means to live the Christian life and trust in God. Trust him for the life that he's called you to. Okay, There are many here today who've made that commitment already, but maybe the motivations for doing things are not exactly square with what God's called us to. And we need to evaluate that. We need to ask ourselves, why is it that we do what we do? Are we doing it to be seen? Are we doing it because simply because there's some reward in it for us? Now, there are times where following God is the primary motivation, and there are secondary things that come in line with that where you benefit from it. Don't feel ashamed of that. If your primary motivation is to follow God and there's some benefit in it for you, that's fine. I'm talking about primary motivations. Have we set those things where they need to be? You might be saying, I've got a desire to do the right thing, so my motivation's right, but I've not been doing it. Let's bring that before the Lord today and say, Lord, I'm surrendering to you. I, won't, I don't just want to do this. I don't want to be a, a good intention. I want to live this out. I'd like you to think about something before we go here. You mentioned, Remember the three that Jesus mentioned? Praying, giving, fasting. That we can do all of those things and for it not to matter at all to God because we've done it for the wrong reasons. Isn't that sad? The best possible things that probably we could do in life uh, are, th- are some of those things, and yet they're, they're of no consequence to him. So they have their reward already. They're not going to get the reward. But you do that for the right reasons, God will honor that. And so today it's about um, asking the Lord to bring the right things that we do alongside the right motivations to do it. It's a question of heart and hands. And so let's just offer that to the Lord. Lord, take these hands, take this heart, and let them be united in our service to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.